emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Veris Age Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are talking to living history. We have President Ronald Reagan's speechwriter, Peter Robinson, with us. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Ron, I am so excited about this. I have been looking forward to this day since we booked Peter about a month ago. And even though my monitor broke today, my computer monitor, I am still a happy guy. That's how good this is going to be. <laughs> I've, I've been really excited about this since we were able to book him. But uh, let me just read his bio. Peter Robinson is the Murdoch Distinguished Policy Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And he hosts Hoover's video series program and podcast, Uncommon Knowledge. In 1979, he graduated from Dartmouth College, where he majored in English. Then he went on to study politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford University, and he graduated from there in 82. He's also got a Stanford MBA, which we'll talk to him about. He served six years in the White House from 82 to 88 for both President, uh, Vice President George Bush and President Ronald Reagan. He's the author of three books, two of which we'll probably focus on today. Peter Robinson, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Oh, so far. A, so far, at least. So far. Okay. Well, we'll see if you feel that way at the end of the hour. But this is just thrilled to have you on. I've been just dying to be able to chat with you. Um, you were born in 57. Oh, and okay, stop right I know, there. I know, I know. I, but, all that buttering me up. And now, but, now but, comes the knife. All it, right. It, but 25 years old. And you're in the White House. How does a kid from Vestal, New York, get to the White House at age 25? Uh, on a fluke, of course. The fluke took the nature of, let me see if I can compress. There's a certain amount of background you need to have to make sense of it, but I'll compress it as best I can. Graduate from high school, go to Dartmouth College, which you mentioned, and then I studied at Oxford. And then the bit that you left out, <clears throat> which I left out, you were reading a bio which I composed, but you've asked, so I'll tell you. After I finished my work at Oxford, I stayed there for a year to write a novel. And the novel turned out to be so bad that even I couldn't read it. So I was broke, and I mean I was really broke. I hadn't paid my final bills at Oxford. And the, what was his name? The steward was Colonel somebody or other. I started getting very nasty letters from Colonel whatever his name was. And I was staying in a 500-year-old cottage. The plumbing was 500 years old at least, I'm sure. And that, that cost me five pounds a week, and I could barely afford that. All right. So I wrote letters to people who I thought might be able to give me leads on a job. And the only person, as I recall... Certainly most people didn't reply, but Bill Buckley replied. And I can't claim to have known him well, but he was he always paid attention to student journalism. And I'd written a few pieces in the Dartmouth newspaper, 
that had caught Mr. Buckley's attention, as he was to me then, but he eventually became Bill. He wrote to me and said, you like politics, you like writing, go to Washington, this is 1982, and see my son Christopher. Christopher Buckley was then a writer for George H.W. Bush, the vice president, and Christopher may be able to find you a job in the still new Reagan administration. All right. I flew back to Washington. I did present myself to Christopher. And what I didn't, what Bill, I don't think, knew when he wrote the letter, Christopher announced to me that he was leaving the job in two weeks and that his replacement had just fallen through. And he said, while you're in the building, go downstairs. This is the old executive office building. Go downstairs and see Tony Dolan. Tony Dolan was then the chief speechwriter to the president. And while I was talking to Tony, the campaign manager for Lou Lehrman, who was running for governor of New York against Mario Cuomo, called to ask Tony if he could recommend a speechwriter. So Tony and Christopher, good friends, conspired well, if effectively what they did was put together a kind of fraternity for prank. Christopher told the Bush people that he'd found the perfect replacement, me, but that they'd better move fast because Lou Lehrman's campaign wanted me. And Tony told the Lehrman campaign they had to move fast because the vice president's office was going to hire me. Two weeks followed. The Lehrman campaign flew me to New York three times. I was in and out of the White House for interviews on the Bush staff. I got offers from both. I thought Lou Lehrman might lose in November, which was only a few months away, but George Bush at least is safe until 1984. That's two years. So for reasons of job security, I took the job with the vice president. Did anybody ask for a writing sample? No. Did anybody ask if I had ever even written a speech? No. Both sides assumed that the other had performed the due diligence and that was really lucky because I had never written a speech in my life. And that is how I ended up in the White House at the age of 25. And may I say, I ordinarily would wish you a large listening audience, but I'm hoping not too many people are listening right now. <laughs> oh, that's an awesome story. And then in the first year, you write over 150 speeches. Well, yes, but they were, I mean, some, yes, let's put, Let's put it this way. The volume was such that I typed most of those speeches. <laughs> <laughs> well, in your book, uh, How Ronald Reagan Changed My Life, which came out in 2003, and you say the book is not a memoir, it's a primer, uh, you, you document 10 life lessons you learned from Reagan. I don't want to go through them all because I want people to read the book, but his ideas on the Cold War, Peter, I've heard this story a lot that his idea was we win and they lose. Correct. And, you know, he had that, that way of taking a complex issue yes. and making it simple. But you analyzed this in, the, in a way I've never heard before. You said actors get used to the idea of alternative endings. And I just thought that was brilliant. He, he well, it was Reagan who was brilliant, of course. It was me, the, the premise of the book, the fact of the book, it's not a speechwriter's memoir of the White House. I was so young when I got there and this huge figure of Ronald Reagan, I was young and I, there were all kinds of ways in which I took his impression. And, and I was still figuring out how you did it, how you, how you made a career. How you, so I studied him. I really did study him. And um, so 
it was a very, very important part of his own formation that he was a movie actor early on in the industry. He moved to Los Angeles and got a contract as an actor in the 30s. And in his first three years, it's, this is in the book, I can't recall the number now, but it was something like in the first three years, he made over 20 pictures. This is long before television and they were turning out pictures. Uh, the president, I heard him say several times, they didn't want them good, they wanted them Thursday. Deadline, he was under deadline. And it was often the case in those days that the writers who were often a bungalow on their own working on the script would get behind the shooting. And you get the actors and the crew on the set and it's expensive. The clock is running. And if you don't have a script, and some of the actors were able to improvise and Reagan had developed a reputation for being able to imagine the next, having they shot from the script the day before, and he, he could imagine the dialogue that would come next, the action that would come next, and they could begin shooting with Reagan improvising. All right. So, and of course, when you're in that professional, in that business, you, you might test a movie. In those days, they weren't testing all of them, but you might test a movie and the, the executives would say, no, the ending is too much of a downer. Give it a new ending. And the ability just to think this... My conclusion was that Reagan developed, partly because of his movie acting, he developed a really deep understanding of the sheer open-endedness of life. And so he becomes a conservative in the 60s, he becomes president in the 80s, and throughout this period, thinking about the Cold War is calcifying and the intellectuals have concluded, it's a strange thing when you think about it, but nobody did think about it. The intellectuals had concluded, the, the Kissinger-Nixon point of view, that the American position was growing weaker and that the best we could do, we were playing from a weaker and weaker hand. We'd have to make concessions. The bold stroke of an, the opening to China from Nixon and Kissinger's point of view, we needed China. We couldn't handle the Soviets on our own anymore. And even conservatives, Jean-Francois Ravel published a book in the 80s called How Democracies Perish. Whitaker Chambers, this great, glowing, luminous figure among conservatives uh, who wrote the magnificent book Witness, he writes himself that in, in the book Witness, that when he left the Communist Party to become, uh, uh, not to join another political party, but to become an anti-communist, he did so with the consciousness that he was leaving the winning side to join the losing side. And so what's so strange about this is that nobody can tell you when he gets up in the morning exactly what's going to happen in the course of the day. But intellectuals, even on the right, had decided they knew how the century was going to end, that, that the history was moving on this. And Ronald Reagan comes along and says, no, no, I don't. I don't see why. Stories can have different endings. Life is open-ended. History is open-ended. I also think, I couldn't prove this, but I also suspect when he was a, as a kid, really as a kid, high school kid, he was a lifeguard on a river. They roped off a portion of the river. What was it? The Rock River, as I recall. And over the course of several summers, he pulled 
And he was proud of it. He knew the number. It was 77 people he'd pulled out of the water. So he'd prevented some 77 drownings. Well, there's something about that. You pull a floundering swimmer out of the water. And at that moment, you've changed history. You've changed that life, that person's history. And you do that 77 times and you get the idea, you can make a happy ending. You can intervene in history. You can intervene in events and they can come out differently from the way that the currents of the river left left untouched might take a, a drowning swimmer down, the currents of history that the intellectuals thought they understood. And Reagan just comes along with this Midwestern common sense, you know, I think we can handle this attitude. So that's what I'm that's the long answer to a very simple question, but there was something really deep in him that understood the contingency of life, the open-endedness of individual lives, but also of history itself. It's not predetermined. No, I, I, it's a wonderful explanation. I've just never heard, heard it like that before. And of course he went on, as Margaret Thatcher said, you know, Reagan won the Cold War without firing a shot. You trace that victory in the Cold War to four speeches, and I know I'm just setting up Ed here because we're almost at, at our break point, but he <laughs> delivered. One answer per segment is the. Yeah, I know. I, I'll shorten that up. No, 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 no. We'll just hold you over for our bonus episode. Oh. <laughs> uh, but you, you give the British Parliament speech that he delivered in 82. Right. He said basically Marxism was on the ash heap of history. And you say that's where he announced his strategy. Yes. And the yeah. evil empire speech in March of 83, where he made the moral case for pursuing the strategy. And then, of course, the Berlin Wall speech, which, of course, you are responsible for writing, which pressed his advantage. And then, of course, the Moscow State University speech written, I think, by your best friend, Joshua Gilder. Correct. I'm not mistaken. And the opening. George's cousin. Yep. George's cousin. Uh, oh, I thought nephew. No, 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 they're cousins. 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 Oh, yes. okay. Yes. I thought he said nephew. Uh, yes. And of course, that was his victory speech. Yes. Now, we want to hear the story of the, and I know you're probably sick of telling it, but uh, I'm sure Ed's going to ask you about the story to, of the Berlin Wall speech, which I, think, which I think is great. So just setting you up for that in the next segment. But unfortunately, we're up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes with our interview uh, with Peter, along with where you can find him and his books. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Peter Robinson, author of the Mr. Gorbachev Tear Down This Wall speech. And Peter, I, I grew up during that time. I was uh, had graduated high school in 84, was in college when that speech was made. And I just have to ask you, tell us the story of how that speech came about. I, I'm happy to. Spring of 1987, uh, April of 1987, we speechwriters were told that an event had been added to the president's calendar. He was already scheduled in June to visit Italy. He was going to go to Rome, see the Pope, see the president of Italy. Then there was a Venice Economic Summit, <clears throat> which was going to take several days. And at the request of the West German government, the staff added a stop in West Berlin to the trip. So after Venice, he'd fly to West Berlin, as we called it in those days, West Berlin, for about half a day and then fly back to Washington. Berlin was celebrating it's 700th, it's 800th, that it was celebrating some centennial anniversary. And the Queen of England had already visited, Gorbachev was going to visit, and that was the point. The West German government, if, if the leader of the Soviet Union was going to visit East Berlin, which Gorbachev was going to do, then the Kohl's government wanted the President of the United States to visit West Berlin. Okay, so <clears throat> I was told where the president would stand, that the speech would last about half an hour, and that he'd have an audience of in the range of 10 to 40,000 people. And given the uh, setting, he should talk about foreign policy, period. That was, that was the direction I got. I flew with the American advance team, people who are going to be making press arrangements, coordinating matters with, the, with security, with the West Germans and so forth. I flew with that team to West Berlin, saw the site where the president would speak, paid a visit on the ranking American diplomat in West Berlin, got a helicopter ride over the Berlin Wall, and then that evening broke away from the American party and got in a cab and went out to a suburb of West Berlin where some, West, some Germans put on a dinner party, 15 or so people, for me. 
the host and hostess and I had never met, but Dieter Eltz was his name. He just died last year. Dieter Eltz had just finished a career at the World Bank in Washington and retired back to Germany. We had friends in common in Washington. Friend, our, fr our common friend got in touch and said, could you, could you host Robinson so we can meet some Berliners? My problem was that when I saw the site where the president would speak, it, I just couldn't imagine coming up with material that was that would be equal to the wall, equal to the, the weight of history. I st st you stood on an observation platform in those days and look over the wall into East Berlin, where the buildings were decrepit, the colors seemed to be leached out of the scene, gray, concrete, there were uh, you could still see great, a great deal of World War II damage, shell marks on buildings, soldiers marching back and forth, dog runs. <clears throat> and I just thought, what, what can I write? And uh, the, uh, the ranking American diplomat was, he gave me a long, he, he reminded me that West Berlin was a left-leaning city, a couple of major universities there, you know how far to the left universities are. Since West Berlin is entirely surrounded by East Germany, they're very sensitive to the subtlety and nuance required in East-West relations and so forth. So at the dinner party that evening, when I was with West Berliners, I told them this. And I said, I was just, when I flew over the wall, I, I can't see how you get, could get used to it. But the ranking, the diplomat here said, don't make a big deal out of the wall because they've all gotten used to it by now. And there was a silence, Ugh. and I thought I'd committed a gaffe, just the kind of gaffe that the diplomat wanted the president to avoid. And then one man raised his arm and pointed, and he said, my sister lives just a few kilometers in that direction, and I haven't, I haven't seen her in more than 20 years. How do you think we feel about this wall? And then they went around the room, and every person told a story about the wall. They hadn't gotten used to it. They'd stop talking about it. But if you asked, they would tell you. And our hostess, Ingeborg Eltz, lovely woman. She died three or four years ago. But she became quite angry and she said, if this man Gorbachev is serious with this talk, glasnost, perestroika, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of that wall. And I put that in my notebook and I knew immediately, instantly, that if the president had heard that comment, if he'd been there, he would have responded to that. The simplicity, the decency, the power of it. And, 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 it, and of course, I also lunged at the line, at the remark, because I was a 30-year-old speechwriter in a lot of trouble. I just couldn't figure out what material, but I, she said that, and I thought, that's it, that's it, that's it. <clears throat> So I went back to Washington and drafted a speech around this line, this idea. And Katami uh, Griscom was the director of communications. He liked the speech, Tony, that idea. And Tony Dolan, the chief speechwriter, Tony Dolan, Tommy Griscom, and I pulled a fast one and persuaded the staff secretary to give the speech to the president on a Friday so he could review it that weekend at Camp David <laughs> on the ground that the president had a lot of speeches coming up and he ought, he ought to be given a chance to get his reading in early. 
the invariable rule in the Reagan White House was that speeches went out to staffing before they went to the president. And we got this speech to the president first. And on the following Monday, we had a meeting in the Oval Office and we're talking about a number of speeches. Josh Gilder wrote a speech, remarks for the president to deliver to the Pope. And the president was, a, he, that brought him alive. He had quite a lot of comments on that, more material he wanted to add. Then we got to my speech and uh, he said, well, that was a, that's a good draft. That's a fine speech. I wanted more from it. We always wanted more from him. And uh, so I said, Mr. President, I learned when I was in West Berlin that they'll hear you on the other side of the wall by radio, maybe even as far east, depending on weather conditions, as Moscow. Is there anything you'd like to say to the people on the communist side of the wall? And the, the president, this is one of those, I can still play this one in my mind. The president thought for a moment and he said, well, there's that, um, there's that passage about tearing down the wall. That's what I want to say to them. That wall has to come down. And I was disappointed because we hadn't gotten fresh material, but that just shows what a fool I was. The speech went out to staffing. From the day it went out to staffing until the president delivered, which was about three weeks, the State Department opposed it. The National Security Council opposed it. The diplomat in Berlin opposed it. They submitted draft after draft, as I recall, seven alternative drafts, different pre pretexts, but from each the line tear down this wall was missing. Then the traveling party left for Italy. I was not part of the traveling party. So this piece, what I've told you so far is firsthand. Now I'm telling you what I heard by Tony Dolan told me the story on Ken Duberstein, the deputy chief of staff. State Department continues to object. Now they're in Italy and Ken Duberstein decides he has no choice but to take the decision. It's bad staffing if you have to make your principal make the same decision twice. Right? So you, you try to resist that. That's a waste. The most precious resource in the federal government is the time of the president of the United States. But Ken decided he really had no choice. So he sat the president down in some Italian garden, he tells me, and uh, described that the State Department said the speech was naive, it would raise false expectations, it would put Gorbachev in a tight position in the Politburo and so forth. And he had the president reread the central passage. And then they talked about it for a while. And Ken said, and this moment came where the president got that, you, you guys are too young to remember this, but that twinkle in his eye. And, uh, and the president said, now, uh, Ken, I'm the president, aren't I? Um, yes, sir, we're clear about that much. <laughs> so, so I get to decide if that line stays in? Yes, sir, it is your decision. Well, then, it stays in. And that was how the day they, the day as Air Force One left Venice to fly to Berlin, the fax machine clicked into action and the State Department sent in another alternative draft. And Ken said, Ken was in the limousine on the way to the wall in West Berlin with the president. And the president leaned over and slapped Ken on the knee and said, the boys at State are going to kill me for this, but it's the right thing to do. So that's the story of that speech. You gave me credit for the speech, which in some superficial, narrow sense, I'm grateful and thank you. It's, it's, it's true, but not deeply true. The deep truth is that that speech belonged to Ronald Reagan. I'd been formed by his thinking, by his speaking style. I was in Berlin to listen for material 
that would appeal to him. I wrote that speech for him as I, I worked for vice president. And then later, of course, George H.W. Bush, I knew him well. He was a, a magnificent man, but I would never have written that for George Bush. And George Bush would never have delivered. When I wrote speeches for him when he was vice president, you'd hand him a speech on foreign policy. He'd take it and say, thank you. And then he'd look at you without even looking at the speech. He'd look at you and say, now you've cleared this with state, right? And Ronald Reagan didn't actually care too much what state had to say if he just disagreed. So only I would never have written it for anybody else and nobody else would have delivered it. That speech, that speech belongs to Ronald Reagan. Well, th thank you for that. It's a, it's a fantastic, marvelous story. And it is really the iconic line of, I think, uh, Reagan's presidency, uh, which, which is uh, obviously pretty intense. Now, see, I, want I just gave Reagan credit as, as is true. At the same time, oh, if only I got royalties. <laughs> I mean, the T-shirts alone, but... <laughs> Right, but right. but and we and we're already a little bit over. But I do want to ask you this question: Do you think that had the Berlin Wall not come down four four years or so after, two, two, uh, about two and a half years later, right? Two and a half years after, would it still be? Would it still have that it, it, its place? What the speech? This the, the, yeah the, that line specifically. Not a chance. It, no, not no, a no, chance. no, 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 yeah. not a chance. When he gave that speech, it had a certain amount of impact. The Berlin press paid attention to it. It was interesting because it was the kind of division that we've gotten used to during four years of Donald Trump. The highbrow press hated it, and the lowbrow populist press loved it. In Germany, as in this country, incidentally, the New York Times, of course, huffed and puffed and denounced it, and the New York Post, as I recall, there were the, the more populist press in this country liked it. But it was a, it was a big speech. But it was just a big speech. It was it disappeared after a couple of weeks. It was when the wall came down that the speech, I don't know how else to put it, it seemed retrospectively prophetic, if you see what I mean. That speech gets remembered because Ronald Reagan was right. He was right. You can't ease up on communism. If you, you can't go part way, Gorbit, you have to take this wall down. That's the, that's the interior dynamic of freedom. All right. That's, so no, I don't think we wouldn't remember it at all if, that, if the wall hadn't come down. All right. Well, we are up against our next break. I want to remind those of you listening that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. There is also our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash tsoe, where you can listen to the show commercial free and the witty banter between sets that we have with Peter and our, uh, our guests. Uh, but also we do a bonus episode, which uh, is right after this show. But right now, a word from our sponsor. And of course, 90 Minds sponsors our bonus episodes so share a mind at 90 Minds. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Peter Robinson. And Peter, what a great story. Wow, that that was chilling. Um, just because, it, like we said, it's living history. Um, I just want to ask you really quick, you went back to Berlin for the 15th anniversary of that speech and did a Fox documentary, I believe. That's right. And with Tony Snow, you visited yes, yes, Berlin. Yes. And then they recreated that dinner party that you That's spoke right. up. That's right. That's where right. you actually got the, what was it like to see East Berlin at that point? Oh, of course it was good to see the people with whom, who had helped me with, and in particular, Ingeborg else, we went back to their house. Uh, it was very good to see them. But, um, Tony, Tony Snow, the late Tony Snow, who, what a sweet man and a good journalist. I do miss him. Um, <clears throat> Tony said, come on, let's go. We finished shooting at one point and he had been back several times. I had never been back. So what you had in my mind was this vivid image. It's still vivid because it was, it's, I, to me, this is a problem. Even young Germans don't, it's almost impossible to, to explain what it felt like to be in West Berlin, a modern city, lights, traffic, action, people well-dressed with a wall all the way around. You could forget about it for a moment and then you'd be walking down a street and you turn and at the end of that alley, there would be a wall. All right. So Tony and uh, Tony said, come on, he'd been here be there before. And we walked through the Brandenburg gate, which 15 years before had been walled off. It had been on the other side of the wall. And we walked up Unter den Linden, under the linden trees, which is, you can think of it as a German version of the Champs-Élysées or the mall in London. It was the central historic thoroughfare of Berlin <clears throat> with great historic buildings, which now had been restored. It was so thrilling. I had seen them only from a distance and they were crumbling. Now they've been restored. <laughs> and Tony, Tony knew his Berlin history and we went to uh, 
as I recall, it was the headquarters for the building was the headquarters. It was either it was either the old Soviet embassy, the Soviet Union no longer existed, or it was the headquarters of the East German Communist Party. It was some commie building. And we got there and it was a Rolls Royce dealership. I thought that was almost too much of a triumph for capitalism, almost more than, but it was just so thrilling to be in this place that had been walled off and dark. And honestly, what this sounds so, um, I don't know, corny or hokey or, but when I was in 1987, when I looked, uh, stood on the observation deck and looked into East Berlin, the only thing I can compare it to with regard to the, what it made me feel like was it, it was as if I were Frodo getting my first glimpse into Mordor. <laughs> it just felt dark and for it, it almost felt as if there was a kind of malign presence there. It was, it was an evil empire to coin a term. It really did feel that way and it was gone. It was gone. It reminds me of what uh, Nixon said about communism. He said, the color of communism is not red, it's gray. Yes. And there's yes. a, uh, speaking of the Rolls Royce dealership, there's a, a communist museum in Prague uh, and it tells the whole story, you know, and then right. it's above a McDonald's. <laughs> so beautiful blending of capitalism and communism. Um, oh, and there was a moment, this has got to be available online someplace, but there's a moment after the fall of the Berlin Wall after the fall of the Soviet Union, I think it was the back page of some expensive advertising site. I think it was the whole back page of Vanity Fair. Mm. And there's Gorbachev in the back of a limousine with a fancy suitcase or briefcase, and it's an ad for Louis Vuitton with the last, at the last general secretary of the Soviet Union with a Louis Vuitton briefcase. Um, um, anyway. Didn't he sell his... Uh birthmark to a vodka distributor sold <laughs> I don't gig, know you know the trademark or something know. to his that birthmark it cracked me up but on Gorbachev I wanted to ask you this because in the book you cite an interview that he did and he said he was it's speaking of Reagan he was an authentic person and a great person if someone else had been in his place I don't know if what happened would have happened yes did yes. Reagan win the cold war I mean, Gorbachev gets a lot of credit from the left. Yeah. Where do you come down? Well, Gorbachev, here's I, where I come down. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the contingency of history. Had, had someone other than Reagan or, or just be, just click through the people who might have been president in place of Reagan. Suppose Jimmy Carter had won. Suppose Bob Dole or Howard Baker or George H.W. Bush had, had been president. Had, suppose they defeated Reagan in the Republican primary. I can't project from what we know about any of those men that they would have taken, that they would have stood up to the Soviets and taken the heat for increasing the defense budget, cutting taxes to revive this economy, putting the Pershing missiles in place in 1983, delivering speech after speech after speech, that sounded like trumpet blasts, would any of them have done that? I can't believe it. I don't think they would have. Did Reagan win the Cold War by himself? You cannot describe the end of the Cold War without John Paul II, 
or Margaret Thatcher, or indeed Mikhail Gorbachev. I think I might also add Lech Wałęsa and Václav Havel. But I do think you can say there are 10 people without whom things would have been different. No Margaret Thatcher, fracturing of the NATO coalition. No Ronald Reagan, continuation of detente. No John Paul II, no demonstration of the <clears throat> illegitimacy of communism in Eastern Europe, even after even three decades after imposing communist regimes. No Gorbachev, it might not have ended peacefully. I I I I wonder, I keep going back and forth, not not that anybody cares about it at this stage, but how much credit does Gorbachev deserve when really what everybody hails him for doing is behaving like a decent human being hmm. and uh, and not calling the troops, the Red Army out of the barracks in in Eastern Europe. Now, they did call out the Red Army in 1956 and put down the Hungarian uprising. They did it again. The tanks rolled into Prague in 68 and Gorbachev could have done it. They still, the Red Army had a massive presence throughout Eastern Europe. He could have crushed the revolutions of 1989, and he didn't. Well, all right, we should be grateful to him for that, I suppose. But what he what he did do was behave like a decent human being. He, he behaved like someone other than a communist, other than a doctrinaire communist. In any event, without Gorbachev, things would have, I, it's hard to imagine. If Andropov had not died when he did, if Chernenko, if Andropov or Chernenko, if Brezhnev were, were still alive, this would not have ended peacefully. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Gorbachev didn't necessarily, he wanted to save communism. Correct. Right? I mean, Correct. he was a diehard believer. Correct. Correct. He was, the way I think of it is that Gorbachev was the last true believer. He was the last real communist. And in some ways, he was a bit of a throwback. Brezhnev, Chernenko, Andropov, they all understood the need for the iron fist. Gorbachev was some kind of strangely naive. He believed that communism itself was so appealing that people would choose to choose communism even if you remove the iron fist. And of course, that's nonsense. Nonsense. Awesome. Well, Peter, uh, I've only got about a minute with you, but you wrote a book called Snapshots from Hell, The Making of an MBA about your time at Stanford, published in 94. And as a CPA, I get a lot of questions about, should I get a CPA or an MBA? First thing I do is say, go get this book. I have recommended <laughs> this book to so many people. I think, you've I think we've both prevented a lot of uh, MBAs as a result. Uh, you write at the end of that book, the reader will have to check with, in with me again in 20 or so years to learn how my classmates and I stand. It's been 26 years. Oh, you do you regret you going to Stanford to get an MBA or <laughs> yeah. was it I a have, worthwhile experience? I have, I have by last count, I have five classmates who are billionaires. Wow. And what I regret is not having gotten to know them much, much better <laughs> while we were undergraduates. <laughs> uh, yeah, but my business degree didn't really take. And yet at the same time, do I regret? Actually, I don't regret. I, you know, I, it's impossible to undo bits of your life. And here's, sure. I, I made good friends. I made friends who are still my friends during that MBA, that crazy MBA experience. Uh, an MBA is only useful for particular kinds of people. And I'm not sure I was 
one of those kinds of people. In fact, I'm pretty damn sure I wasn't. Is that what landed you at Hoover Institution? The fact yes. That you went out there and you made connections. And Ronald Reagan said to me when I was leaving the White House in my little farewell meeting, he said, now, where are you going? And I told him, Stanford Business School. And he said, well, the faculty out there is a little left-leaning. But you get in touch with my friend, Milton Friedman. And so I thought I, I show up at Stanford Business School. Milton Friedman was across the street at the Hoover Institution. And I thought, how many times am I going to get an introduction from a president to a Nobel Prize winner? So I did present myself to Milton Friedman, who as I don't know if you ever knew him, but he was a delight. He could be quite rough on you if he thought you were mistaken intellectually, but he was a delightful, warm, generous, wonderful man. And he kind of introduced me around Hoover. So um, later I, I was invited to return to, to Hoover. I suppose that's the advantage of my MBA that I happened to run into people across. I got to know people across the street at Hoover. Some, well, I, I met Melton and his wife Rose once at a speech they gave, and uh, we've had his son on, David Friedman. Oh, David's on, great. On, on the show, yeah, he was a delight. But unfortunately, Peter, I'm out of time, and if I go anymore, Ed's going to kill me. So folks, we'd like to remind <laughs> you, if you want to get a hold of Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and we are back on the soul of enterprise with peter robinson and peter it's not often that i uh, get chills uh doing this show uh it has happened on a couple of occasions but your story is is certainly one of them but one of the the times when i've got chills listening to one of your shows uncommon knowledge mm. was your more recent interview with with jimmy lie 
And our our listeners have heard Ron and I talk about Jimmy and his experiences, and uh, you know, it, co- coming to to Hong Kong when he was a boy and getting a bar of chocolate and it turning changing his life completely. What what are your thoughts on the situation, both with Jimmy specifically, but also with what's going on with Hong Kong, and what maybe the U.S. should do about it? Yeah, well, Jimmy, as people, you you guys can put a link up to the show, perhaps the most yes. recent interview yes. I did with him. So, Jimmy Lai is a great figure. He is. I had the have had the feeling when I was talking to him that in one way or another, he's the kind of man that George Washington must have been. I'm talking about a, a, a Chinese man, of, of course, who speaks heavily accented English. I don't mean that he had the bearing of Washington. I mean he had the courage of Washington, or 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 St. Thomas More, must similar kind of person. So Jimmy Lai, a billionaire, and he has British citizenship. And he won't leave Hong Kong. He just said, this city means everything to me, it gave me the life that I have. I'm not leaving. When all his, I shouldn't say all his friends, but I know many of his American friends, and they're just desperate for him to get out of there which would be easy for him to do. He's one of these rich Chinese who has houses other places. He will not leave. And so in the the last interview, which I did this past summer, I said, well, Jimmy, the, what? they've detained you a couple of times already. This is not going well. And he said, uh, and he referred to his faith. He is a convert to Catholicism. So he's, he's a Christian. And he said, well, it, this, I mean, this, staggering thing he said well it could be it could be that this is what is this is what i this is what i need for the good of my soul maybe i need to go to prison maybe i need to suffer for the good of my soul unbelievable for a man to say that and now of course they've carted him off he is in prison um what do i think about hong kong i'm not i don't i i'm not I don't know what kind of trades or sanctions might be useful. I was persuaded by Jimmy, whom I interviewed maybe a year ago, and then I interviewed him again this past summer, but a year ago he made the argument that the mainland Chinese, the communist Chinese, were going to leave Hong Kong alone because they needed it too badly. Something like 60% of foreign investment flowing into China flows through Hong Kong, because investors from Europe and this country want to be able to understand that they've got the rule of law on their side, they'll be able to remove their profits and so forth. And so the Chinese need Hong Kong and and they'll be very careful, any moves that will be incremental. And that was just wrong. I don't believe the analysis was incorrect. As far as I can tell, the Chinese are going to damage themselves. But the the horrible power dynamic that seems to power communism in its it seems to be driving them to but they can't take dissent they can't handle the it's 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 uh 
they can't handle the truth. What's that? The, the, I, Alan I, Sorkin, I, a few yes, good men. Exactly. A few good men. A few good men. They can't permit the truth. So I just I just remember that I did an interview with um, Nathan Sharansky, who was a refusenik in the Soviet Union. And why did the Soviets? And he said he tried until he was 20 or 21 to be a good Soviet citizen. And here's what it meant. It meant that you said what you knew they wanted to hear. You read the books that they permitted you to read. You led your life the way you knew they wanted you to lead your life. And at the same time, you knew that it was all a lie. So the question is, why do they, why insist on this? And the answer is because they need, they need a humiliated, broken population. And the Chinese seem to have fallen to the same. So this, to me, one thing that we're, we're finding out here, you, <clears throat> you might want at some point, you might want to invite Stephen Kotkin on the show. Stephen Kotkin is the Princeton historian. He's working on the third and final volume of what will surely be the definitive biography of Stalin. Stephen came out here to Berkeley and he began visiting the Hoover Institution as a young graduate student. So we're talking about a man who's 60-ish now. So for four decades, Stephen has been poring over the archives of the Soviet Union and communist documents, Hoover and other places. It started at Hoover. He probably knows more and has read more archives, meetings, uh, notes on meetings from the Politburo and so forth than any person alive, including Russians. And I once said to him, Stephen, what's the central finding? What's the one thing that you learn from pouring over those archives? And Stephen replied immediately that they were communists. They were communists. They really believed it. And even when they had nothing to prove to each other, even when they were in private conversation with each other, the members of the Politburo talked like communists. They used Marxist-Leninist terms. They used that kind of analysis. And as far as I can tell, for some years now, we in the United States have permitted ourselves to believe that the people running China aren't really communists. They don't really believe that stuff. What they believe in is markets and economic growth. And what that means is that eventually they'll move in our direction politically as well. They'll, they'll permit greater political freedoms. They're communists. That's yeah. what we're finding out now. They really are communists. One minute left and a totally unfair question to wrap it up. What would Reagan do? Tell the truth. He would tell the truth. Reagan, I think that's what I'm struck by more than every speech you give. Some say, well, did the Berlin Wall make any difference? Berlin Wall speech make any difference? The answer is, I don't know. It's really hard to say. But think, but think about a speech that we know is a great speech. Take the Gettysburg Address. Did it make any difference? Beats me. You can't prove it, right? You can't say the GDP ticked up or there was a, some, you can't prove every speech, even big speeches. It's a message in a bottle. You give a speech and you don't, you hope that human beings hear it and respond in some way. And so what I, I learned from Ronald Reagan is that giving it, even when you're president of the United States and you seem to command the attention of all the media, giving a speech is an act of faith. It's an act of hope. You, all you can do is use your, and in dealing with the Soviets in those days, 
you just didn't. But he did it all the same. He and John Paul II and Margaret Thatcher, you tell the truth. Why? Because it's the truth. And so that's, that's what Reagan would do. He would tell the Chinese what they were like. He would tell them what they were. Peter Robinson, thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. We hope you come back. We, I, I, I got through like only a short portion of the questions that I wanted Dude. to ask you. Thanks so much. Uh, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? We have Mary Ruart, uh, author of Death by Regulation, so we'll be able to get some COVID insight. All right. Outstanding. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. Hang on, Peter. Okay. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by sage transforming the way people think and work so the organizations can thrive join us next week folks on friday at 1 p.m pacific time in the meantime check out soulofenterprise.com contact ed or myself at ask at thanks for listening folks have a great weekend